Deuteronomy 1.17, do not show partiality in judging. Here, both small and great alike, do not be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. Leviticus 19.15, the law of God says, you shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. Proverbs 24, 23, these are the sayings of the wise to show partiality in the judgment of people is not good. In this little letter, James 3, 17, the wisdom from above is without partiality. And Jesus said in John 7, 24, stop judging by outward appearances and start judging justly. James chapter 2 is the declaration that a real Christian does not show personal favoritism. And if they are discriminating, showing prejudice, outward evaluating, especially with an end toward accomplishing something beneficial to themselves. In other words, there's a a perverseness in the way you assess quickly and outwardly because you perceive there's a benefit I can receive. If that is reflected in your everyday living, stop it. Stop it now. That's not what a real Christian does. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren... Do not, present active imperative, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And I said last time I was with you, it's a possessive genitive. Hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory, with an attitude of personal favoritism. Do not do it. It is a passionate prohibition. It's a big deal. It handicaps Christianity. Personal favoritism, discrimination, prejudice literally means to receive someone by face. The color of their skin, the nature of their clothing, the perception you have of where they live, what they do. It does not reflect the glory of God in the person of the Son of God because it distorts the gospel of God. Mahatma Gandhi was interested in Christianity in the 1930s. He had come to a missionary gathering because he felt like in his interest of what he had heard about Christians, it had the potential to deal with the caste system in India. Gandhi became the most influential leader in the 20th century. He's called the father of India. He facilitated independence from the colonization of Great Britain in the 30s and the 40s. He was an influencer and an impact player for millions of people. So he comes into this Christian gathering. He wants to learn. He's attracted to the gospel and to this man he had heard about called Jesus. And walking into that gathering, 
he heard these words from the greeter who said, go and worship with your own people. So Gandhi walked out, and these are his words. He said, if that's what Jesus Christ is about, I want nothing of it. When I read that recently, it could not help but punctuate the potential good or not good that can come from failing the test of treating people based on who they are, not how they look, or not where they come from. Attitude of partiality, discrimination, prejudice, this word means to literally receive someone by face. You assess them quickly. I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you. Prejudice, discrimination, an, adjust, an assessment, an evaluation, and an experience that resulted from a premature calculation. James says, can't do it. Passionate prohibition. Verse 2, he gives this practical, and I'm going to argue pathetic picture of personal favoritism, receiving someone by face at work. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, so he's got designer garb, he's got jewelry, valuable jewelry, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, workman's clothes. I just came from work clothes. Maybe holes in my clothes. Verse 3, and you pay special attention. Pay special attention means you look them over. You look them over to assess, evaluate. You scrutinize. You pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes. So you see them, you assess them, and then you offer benefit to them. And you say, you sit here in a good place, VIP seating. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there, we could add way over there, not in the prime seats, but somewhere off of the edges, or sit down by my footstool, lower place. This was an abusing of the poor and a using of the rich. How do we know that? Verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? The word distinction is discriminated. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges? And this is the perverse pursuit of the attitude of personal favoritism. You have evil motives. You want to use the rich guy. You want to ingratiate yourself to someone with perceived influence, status, or stature. And you could care less about the person who has no perceived benefit to you. You have no time for them. You have no interest in them. Your evil, your motives, your pursuit, your desire is evil. It's dark. So you have a passionate prohibition, a pathetic, practical picture of what you should not do and how it works itself out in real time so you get it. This is how it works. And at the bottom of it all is this dark recognition that when you do that, there's something dark in here. It's not just 
I like some people and not other people. It's not neutral. It's not harmless. It's evil. And besides, when you do that, there are significant problems that challenge that practice. Number one, verse five, the problem with prejudice is a theological problem because this is not how God is, and you misrepresent God when you do this. Listen. Notice the word listen. Hey, listen to me. It's got that flavor. Listen, my beloved brethren. I love you, but you can't do this. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God, which he promised to those who love him? You are behaving in contradiction to the way God is and how God behaves. He chooses the least, not the best. Not the influencer, but the non-influencer. Not the noble, but the not-so-noble. You're behaving in a way contradicting the ways of God. You have a theological problem when you do this, verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor. God honors the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? You not only have a theological problem, you have a logical problem. Because it's not the poor man that is the oppressor. It's the rich man that's the oppressor. And drag you into court is the vivid imagery of Matthew 18, where Jesus tells the story of the one who owed a great debt, forgiven and released from that debt. He goes to someone who owes a lesser debt, and he drags him into court. That's what you would do. You would mistreat them because of your perception of what they owed you and their unwillingness to be able to address that. It is a logical problem. It does not square with reality. And it is irrational to prefer a group or a type that regularly and normally injures and deny and diminish that group which does not injure. So, James is saying, makes no sense logically. Thirdly, it doesn't make any sense as it relates to how you treat your family as opposed, and the most precious one in your spiritual family, do they not, this is the rich, blaspheme the fair name, a reference to Jesus, by which you have been called. You're a Christian, And many of these wealthy influencers are blasphemers of that one. The rich, the upper crust, the Pharisees, the religious elite, they blaspheme Jesus. They called him in Matthew 27, that deceiver. He's a manipulating deceiver. He's a liar. Luke 22, they referred to him as a prophet who couldn't prophesy. You're a faker. Verse 65, they called him of Luke 22, called him a blasphemer. Someone who diminishes God in such a way that it's abhorrent and destructive. He is filled with demonic influence. He is not who he claims to be. So, 
Here's your family of Christians. They bear the name of the fair one. And you mistreat them because of some external perception. And you grant benefit to the persons, the class, the group, simply by how you perceive them that diminishes, blasphemes, and injures by name, word, and reputation the one for which you're named, the chief family member, the firstborn, the best and the highest. You discredit him when you advance or elevate them because they discredit him. Here's a sobering thought. You become like God's enemies when you're partial. You use your strength to oppress the poor. You know, that's the footstool idea, lesser treatment and demeaning treatment. And you lift up those God often resists and those who blaspheme the one for whom you are named. This is perverse and it reverses for the Christian what they ought to be elevating and displaying. Listen, it would be like elevating someone who is the most perverse of the culture and denying benefit to someone who is a God-seeker family member. Don't do it. It's illogical. It's irrational. And it violates family. Listen to John Calvin. He compares it to honoring your executioners and injuring your friends. Now, where I wanted to get to today is the third problem. We begin with verse 8. It's not just a logical problem or a reality family problem. It's not just a theological problem in verse 1. It's not just a doxological problem. You steal glory or diminish glory from God, but it's a legal problem. This is where we ended last time. If However, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Verse 8 says this. There is a law that's royal. Royal because it's given by the king. The fair name by which you are called is the king of everything and he's given a law. And that law is summarized, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and as a reflection of your love for God, validating that you do love him, you love what he loves, and you love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a natural law, it's not a county law, it's not a state law, it's not a federal law, it's the king's law, it's the highest law. And if you are behaving as the king would command, you would never treat someone with discriminating words or actions because you would never want to be discriminated against that way. If, however, if it should be the case that you're not a discriminator, you're not a receive-by-face person, you're fulfilling the highest law. And you're doing kalos. You're doing well. 
There are two words for good or well in the New Testament. Agathos, you're doing practical good. And then this word kalos, you're noble. You're honorable. You're living in a way that not only is respectable among men, it's honorable in the eyes of the king who gave the law. You bear witness to him. You elevate him. You reflect him. You are noble. And if you're living without prejudice and discrimination, you're doing really well. You know why? Because you're bearing witness to the one whose name you bear. You're honoring him. You're doing well. But, verse 9, but, on the other hand, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. But as an adversative conjunction, you're not doing well if you are showing partiality. Showing partiality is, this is an activity, it's interesting, it's a point-in-time verb. It's not just a pattern of your life, it's even once in a while you display this characteristic, you show partiality, you are what? Committing sin. Committing is, at that point in time, you become a committer of sin, which violates the will of God and are convicted by the law as transgressors. As a person who is outside of God's will and way, you are a lawbreaker. The word transgressor is someone who is out of line, stepping over the line, displaying a disregard and a disinterest. God said, here's what I want you to do. Here's the boundary. And you're over here. You stepped away from that. And the law of love, that if you do it, is reflective of doing well, being violated convicts you. It's convicting you now, tense of the verb, and continues to convict you. So every time you look at someone and assess outwardly, giving value to some because you perceive there's benefit for you in that, or giving no interest in someone else because you perceive there is no benefit in that, is an act which is the convicting hammer and judgment of the judge, the one lawgiver and judge, and a violation of his law. You are convicted at that point. You are guilty. It is a violation of the royal law, especially the commandments upon which all of those laws hang. It is explicitly, verse 9, stated as sin. When you show partiality, you're convicted as a transgressor and a lawbreaker. You have a legal problem. You do not do well, you are not noble. You're ignoble. You're dishonorable. You represent things that are alien to the ways of God and the things of God. So I want to just pause for a minute. I want you to think two things. Number one, how do you or we tend to discriminate? 
Because you could say, as I have heard said among God's people before, I'm not racist. I'm not prejudiced. How do we discriminate? What ways do we do that? What ways do you do that? I read yesterday a story of Lionel Richie. Do you know that name, Lionel Richie? I'm going back in the past. I know you don't listen to his music, but I used to. Student at Brown University walking through the quad at Brown, and some fraternity had Lionel and the Commodores blaring across the, you know, once, twice, three times a lady, I think, was the song. And I remember that. I'd never heard him before. Lionel Richie and the Commodores got their first big paycheck. This was in the news yesterday. I have no idea why it was in the news, except I could use it this morning. (laughs) Their first big paycheck, they walked into a Mercedes car dealer. He did. Bell bottoms, he said, had his fro, walked into the Mercedes dealer. He said he got to looking, trying to figure out what cars are going to buy six Mercedes luxury cars. His whole band was going to get their own ride, celebrating their first big paycheck in the music business. He said he walked around a little bit, and some salesman came over and said, boy, either you need to buy something or you need to leave. He said, no, no, I'm here to buy something. And he bought six new Mercedes-Benz cars. Now, I don't know. I think I would have gone to another dealer, wouldn't you? I've had that experience. You know, if, if you go into a high-end car shop, Beverly Hills, I, you know, the, the higher-end cars, Porsche, Maserati, Ferrari, Go in in your work clothes and see how much attention you get. The kind of attention you'll get is, sir, please don't sit in these cars. <laughs> or you can dress suit, tie, sharp, and walk into the same dealership. Sir, can we help you? What would you like to know? What are you interested in? What are they assessing? Purely the sense of how I look the clothes I wear, their perception of whether I fit the profile of somebody who could potentially be or do what they hope I could be or do. Ways we discriminate, I'm going to give you a list. I'm going to give you eight things to think about. By profession. Hey, what do you do? I'm a doctor. Something happens. Hey, I'm a bus driver. Something happens. Hey, I'm laid off. Something happens. Hey, I'm a housewife. Something happens. Hey, I am a CFO. Something happens. We discriminate by profession, vocation. We discriminate by dress, clothing, neat, sharp, new, fresh. We discriminate by looks, handsome, athletic, fit, young, old. Ever anybody uh, discriminate against you in that way? Painful. I uh, played midget football. First time I ever played for a contact football team, midget sports football. My best friend played for the Franklin Township Black Knights. 
he invited me to come and join his team, which was a few miles away from my home. I'm 12 years old. I had unbreakable black rim glasses. I had 10 pair of those glasses because they broke and the manufacturer would replace them. <laughs> I had ears like this, hair very short, black rim glasses, and I showed up the first practice, my exposure to the Franklin Township Black Knights. Joe Shipsky was the middle linebacker and the captain of the defense and saw this nerd-like guy show up to practice And he mocked me incessantly. Boy, you need a violin or a piano. Now listen. Two things happen. Number one, you feel bad. You're the stranger. You're the new guy. You're being ridiculed for the assessment that is happening because you don't look like a football player. Two things happen. You feel bad. And in my case, something else happened is watch this. So Joe Shipsky assessed early, but Joe Shipsky couldn't run. But the nerdy guy with the glasses, he could run. (laughs) And it was interesting, later that weekend, after our first few practices, we met at one of the teammates' homes, and Joe Shipsky sat with me, and we shared food and fun and fellowship, all because something changed based on his assessment of what I could do versus how I looked. And I'm saying that to you because I'm not alone in that transaction. How you dress, how you look, color of your skin, your wealth. Number four, but we discriminate by wealth. Number five, we discriminate by where people live, their home, their neighborhood. We discriminate by their car. We discriminate by who they know, where they went to school, number eight. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How does it feel if someone discriminates against you? How does it feel when somebody assesses you based on what you wear or don't have? How does it feel if you look nerdy and you don't fit in? Painful? Do you want someone to do that to you? The reason I like the royal law being summarized so succinctly is anybody can get this. What would I want somebody to do to me? And I think the motivator for this is not just the recognition that I'm a lawbreaker, but when this is violated, it's injurious to people. And if you've lived it, you know how painful. A guy by the name of Bishop Blake in Birmingham, where I served, inner city pastor, we became friends older man, mature. He was called bishop, not because he was a bishop, but the inner city had such regard for William Blake. They called him Bishop Blake. And we were at a prayer gathering in Shaco Springs outside of Birmingham, and we were talking over racial issues, because Birmingham has a lot of that. 
And the inner city African-American pastors were trying to communicate to the suburban white pastors their challenge in the community. And there was literally a debate of principle. Side A, the white side would communicate why the black side shouldn't feel so pained or sensitive or concerned. And the black side would say, you do not understand. You don't know the life we've lived. You don't know the experiences we've had. What it's like to grow up in this city and endure the kind of treatment that we have endured. If you could understand, you wouldn't be saying what you're saying. And then Bishop Blake stood up and there was probably 50 of us in the room. And I was not too far from him. And this is saintly distinguished black pastor from the inner city of Birmingham stood up and he told his story of walking down the street with his father, being accosted by those in authority, his dad beaten, him fire-hosed, limped home together. And as he's telling that story, he's got tears streaming down his face. And I'm telling you, it didn't matter what your principled thoughts were about what they should feel or not feel as black men in ministry in Birmingham. It became an issue not of, hey, you ought to see this differently. This became an issue of, I see the reality. I know what that does. And I want to help be an agent of influence to overcome what that is. Listen, here's here's the point I want to make. If you don't see this for what it is, you don't see it for the way God sees it. Secondly, you don't see it for what is injured or damaged because of it. You are convicted by the law. It's like the judge and the books are open. Harry's a discriminator and the judgment is made. I'm convicted. I'm a lawbreaker. I've dishonored the highest law possible. And I have injured. I've treated someone in a way that's incongruous with the way God treats me. Whether it's my status socially, religiously, economically, It breaks God's law. It's a legal problem, and it's a big legal problem, and it's a practical, injurious problem. Verse 10, for whoever, this is all part of the legality, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of it all. Verse 9 explicitly says it's stated as sin, and breaking any law makes you guilty of it all. Look at verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. 
So it's clear this is about the law. Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. There is an assessment tool. The law that produces liberty will also produce the consequence of no mercy. Verse 13, for judgment by the law of God, the royal law of God will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Because prejudice, discrimination shows no mercy. And then this big statement at the end of verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's the bottom line. You're a transgressor. No matter what you're not doing, you become a lawbreaker of God's royal law when you are someone who displays discrimination and prejudice. You receive people by face. You treat them in a way that seeks to accomplish something good for you, regardless of how not good it is for them. And when you break the law in one point, and this is an important thing to understand in verse 10, you can keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point And you've become guilty of it all because it's a law of commandments. There are individual commandments, but each individual commandment reflects one whole. Let me put it this way. We divide up sin into sins, and we miss the gravity of it. God gave one law consisting of ten commandments. The golden chain, someone have put it this way, the golden chain of obedience is broken if one link is missing. If you're hanging over a precipice by a chain and one link goes, you are lost. If someone hurts my foot by so doing, he hurts my whole body. We need but hit the glass in one place, said D.L. Moody. We need but hit the glass in one place to break the whole glass. One crime committed just once constitutes someone a criminal. To cheat on one test or one question makes me a cheater. It is not about which one, it is that it is one. Look at verse 11. It doesn't matter what sin you commit. To break one of them makes you guilty of the weight of breaking the law of God, as if you've broken them all. Now listen, the consequences aren't as great. You're a lawbreaker. The impact may not be as great to you or someone else, but you are a lawbreaker. There is no lesser sins or inconsequential sins. Prejudice, like any other sin, breaks the law, and one fails to have and enjoy fellowship with God and express the beauty that is God. To obey all the commandments and yet be prejudiced is to be guilty as if you had broken them all. Now, that's sobering. So here I am, Harry, the receive-you-by-face assessor. And when I enter into that, I become guilty before God as if I had broken the whole law. I'm guilty of it all because it all sits on me. 
And I think the fact that he uses adultery and murder is to heighten the reality and put this in context. This is a big deal. Wouldn't you say being an adulterer is a big deal? Yes. Old Testament. Is it bad? Yes. You die. Is murder bad? Yes. You die. Is prejudice bad? Yes. The consequences of sin and breaking the law is catastrophic. The wages of sin is death. Separation from God. And if you're not a Christian, one expression of this makes you guilty before God of it all. And this is an expression of a failure to promote mercy and concern in someone else, which is why verse 12 talks about speaking and acting of those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless. Why does he talk about mercy? Because when you treat someone by face and not by concern for who they are, you fail to display mercy towards them. And mercy or merciless, a lack of mercy, is like some other sin that you might call obvious and unacceptable. Go back to Romans chapter 2 real quick. Let me show you how bad. Galatians 3.10, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law, the book of the law to perform them. Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God on men who suppress the truth. They exchange the glory of God for that which is not God. And God gives them, verse 26, up to degrading passions. Degrading passions. Homosexual passions. Women in verse 26. Men in verse 27. Committing indecent acts. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. So you've got the kind of sinning that is undeniable and unacceptable, they are not acknowledging God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind, a mind that cannot measure or decide. It has no honor. It can't discriminate between right and wrong. It's twisted and broken, and it's not able to sense what it used to sense. Gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Now look at the not proper things. Being filled up, filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, their slanders. Look at this. How bad? Haters of God. Insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. Interesting, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, verse 31. Do you see these words? Unmerciful. So in the grocery list of perverse, depraved, unrighteous activity, house where there's haters of God, wickedness, evil, murder, 
is unmerciful. Because unmerciful, which is what prejudice is, it's not treating someone in a way that they ought to be treated with. You're unkind. You display a lack of mercy towards them. Go back to Matthew chapter 18. So the law of liberty, the law of God, when applied, it produces something, freedom. Freedom from sinful passion and freedom from sinful action. And the law of liberty, when it's lived out, is pleasing to God and honorable to the Lord because it displays a kind of speaking and acting where you represent the heart of God towards people. And we saw that in verses 26 and 27, talking about visiting and helping the helpless, visiting the vulnerable, staying unstained from the world. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Because, verse 12, or verse 13 rather, mercy triumphs over judgment. The bottom line is in Matthew 18, what you've received, verse 21, you are to give. And if you haven't received it, you will not give it. The Christian is not governed by a man-made law, but by a God-given law. And that judgment will be assessed by the law of love, which produces liberty. And listen to this, it always displays mercy. And it always displays mercy because it has received mercy. And when it says mercy triumphs over judgment, the judgment that I deserve will be overcome by the mercy I have received. And I live out of that mercy that I have received by giving grace and mercy to those in my life. And the driver for that is the bounty of God's goodness towards me. Matthew 18, 21, you know this passage. I want to punctuate a word or two. Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That's hyperbole to say as many as it takes. Verse 23, for this reason, I'm going to explain this, Jesus says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves, the king typifying God. Slaves typifying us, verse 24, when he had begun to settle them, this king, one who owed him 10,000 talents, was brought to him, an unpayable debt. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me. 
and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Now watch verse 28. Big debt, unpayable debt. But that slave who enjoyed that mercy and that grace and that forgiveness, verse 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. So you have a hundred days wages worth worth versus 10,000 talents. A million five in today's numbers versus two months wages. Three months wages. That's the difference. And he seized him and he began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slaves fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And summoning him, his Lord, the master, king who had forgiven him, said to him, you, watch these words, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Now watch verse 33. Should you not also have had what? Mercy. On your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that he was owed him. Now watch verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you, each of you, no exceptions, no exclusions, does not forgive his brother from your heart. Mercy triumphs over rightful judgment. When you receive mercy from God because there's a debt you couldn't pay, it should result in a wealth of generosity, forgiving kindness, mercy showing. I want to offer to you what I've received, even though you owe me, even though you're indebted to me. And a failure to show mercy, having received mercy, results in what? No mercy. I don't know who the torturers are, but I don't want to meet them. Prejudice denies people gracious kindness because we perceive they have nothing to offer us. Or the flip side is, I think you do, so I'm going to manipulate you to extract benefit from you. See, the other side is, I'm not the poor guy or the guy that's not welcome. I'm a guy who has stuff. You know I have stuff, and you're going to manipulate me in order to gain access to my stuff. One is an abuse. The other is use, misuse. Neither reflect the spirit of a Christian that says, I recognize that I've been the recipient of unmerited kindness and I'm going to display generous interest in you, not because of what you can do for me or what I perceive you can't do for me. The mercy that triumphs over my judgment is the mercy I'm granting to you. 
And to not do it means when I am judged and assessed by the royal law, I will receive no mercy. And the reason I don't receive it is because I have never tasted it. Here's what I'd like to argue in conclusion today. Real Christians display mercy and refuse to be prejudiced and discriminate and use and abuse people because it not only doesn't reflect the God whose name they bear, it doesn't reflect the mercy that they've come to share. Real Christians treat people equally, fairly, and kindly. And to not do that indicates I am not a real Christian because there'll be no mercy for me. And breaking that law, that one, I may not commit adultery, I may not murder, but if I discriminate, I'm guilty as if I have broken the whole law. Live out of the mercy you've received. So here's my question in conclusion. Have you received mercy? If you've received it, live out of it. If you've been prejudiced and discriminated against, live like you would want somebody to live toward you. And if you have been in a position of power or influence or privilege, don't treat someone in a way that you would not be treated, want to be treated as. And if you're somebody who's got less and you see somebody with more, know that you wouldn't want to be manipulated so somebody could get something from you. Stop holding your faith in Jesus Christ, the glory, with an attitude that measures things that don't matter. Can you say amen to that? So next time, we're going to jump in and work our way through the faith that displays and validates your relationship with God. Father, thank you for this time this morning, the opportunity we have had to just press in to the weighty words of we're convicted by the law of love and the royal law as transgressors, violators of your will and way. And Lord, when we behave in these ways, it's not only irrational, Lord, it misrepresents you it's doxological, and it's also legal as a problem that we have before God. Help us to be honorable, to live right, to assess, to evaluate in a way that measures people on the things that matter. Lord, help us to display the mercy that we've received so we can enjoy the bounty of your kindness when we stand before you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.